John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing the first ever collaboration between Kevin Hart and Tiffany Haddish, at least in movie form, Night School, the long-delayed Warner Brothers animated motion picture, Smallfoot, the uh, brand new slasher movie, Hellfest, plus September's uh, entry into Jubilee Fest 2018, My Neighbor Totoro. Let's get started. Ready to get started? I'm not playing with you. What's the capital of Belgium? Waffles? What? That is not the answer! Oh, oh. Get back here! You starting to force my hand. Water is comprised of... Rain. Focus! It's a gas! Two part hydrogen! One part oxygen! You got it right, Teddy. What does that smell? Now that's a gas. Oh, you bust ass in my face? <laughs> it's in my mouth. You got my lips all checked. Get kind of get how, why they used lean back in the, that trailer. I mean, Fat Joe is in the movie, so it's a it's an interesting touch. Anyway, um, yeah, Kevin Hart isn't exactly breaking any new ground. It if hey, do you like Kevin Hart movies? Well, here's a Kevin Hart movie with Tiffany Haddish this time. Um, this is basically another iteration in the same problem I pointed out back when I brought up how Judd Apatow ruined movie comedies. And it's not, once again, it's not his fault. What he was doing at the time was innovative and unique, and it brought a brand new spark to, com- to comedy films. Unfortunately, that spark has long since turned into a smolder. And now basically everybody who's not, everybody is trying to imic, 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 imitate, mimic, copy that formula without being all that good at it. Even Apatow has kind of even those movies have kind of become dated as so many more movies have gone on to try and ape that formula and it just doesn't work you know imp, you know instant improv comedy can only work for so long it doesn't you know hold a candle to well you know practiced and written and rehearsed comedy there's a reason why comedies like I mean, whatever improv was done in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they still took the time to write out and plan out what was going on, and then the improv came naturally. Whereas, since Apatow kind of came along and created just basically the template comedy where you'd come up with the premise and you make things up as you go along, it has it has been the bane of cinematic comedy. It is it has continued to be a drag on the genre. And this is another example of that. And it's not even that the people are bad. Once again, we've got a great cast here. I mentioned Fat Joe plays a cameo. He's the, he's the, you know, one incarceration, incarcerated while, uh, while they're doing night school. Rob Riggle is fun for the most part, although he's a pretty one note character. Maryland Rice Cub has some great one liners. Um, Yo, Haddish is the standout for the entire movie. Kevin Hart is basically Kevin Hart. Um, Keith David's in it <laughs> for a bit. Taron Killam is pretty funny in it. Yo, he's doing. I think he's you know. Uh, I think he's actually pretty funny when he's trying to do the the black voice. I don't hear color. You know, so he plays that off well. But at the same time, it doesn't ultimately really you know go anywhere. Um, Romney Malco plays a pretty decent. You know, does a great job as this sort of woke conspiracy theorist character. And then, 
Yeah, but at the same time, this oh, Ben Schwar- Ben Schwartz is here. He's a, he's a great co- Al Madrigal. He's hilarious, but at the same time, their characters are pretty one note. They're kind of un on you know they're kind of unexplored under they're underwritten and the actors are basically forced to kind of improv their way into character development and it doesn't really go anywhere and of course Kevin Hart is just basically being Kevin Hart he's not playing a character he's basically he's Kevin Hart is this generation's Chris Tucker in that the, he doesn't play a character he is that comedic identity he doesn't you don't expect Kevin Hart to go play separate like Taron Killam is playing a different character than he usually does. And Ben Schwartz and Romney Malco and Rob Riggle, they're playing characters that they aren't normally known for. Kevin Hart is being Kevin Hart. Tiffany Haddish is, for the most part, being Tiffany Haddish. You know, it's ultimately, I mean, once again, it's not a very well thought out execute. It's basically, here's two people, let them be who they are and have a couple of improv comedians around them to do the funny, to help do the funny stuff. That show is it's genuinely like I didn't recognize him at first, but he does he does a great job as this character. But it, once again, the character is woefully underwritten. So much of this movie is has no actual character development or writing. It's all improv. It's all hey, let's just make stuff up, and you you feel that. I mean, you can laugh at the joke. The jokes are funny for the most part, but this but there's just only so much. There's, there's it's like the difference between seeing a stand up and watching like. A comedic play. You can tell the difference. With the play, you're seeing a story play out. You're seeing characters. With a stand-up piece, just you're normally telling your jokes or stories or trying to just make you laugh. And that's kind of what this is, you know? I, I And the longer I thought about it, the more I'm just like, yeah, the jokes were funny for the most part. But it's not a movie I'd want to go back and watch. Whereas something along the line. Here's a, here's a good example. Jumanji, where Kevin Hart also basically played himself, has more is more along the lines of a, has more character development, has more writing going into it than most of his led uh, uh, comedic movies. Like if we take a look at his uh, his filmography up to this point, Ride Along, yeah, he's basically playing the same character. Central Intelligence, same thing. Um, the only one he and even his even his character in Secret Life of Pets is basically just himself you know it's 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 his voice it's not really his he you don't really recognize any sort of character developments or anything like that um yeah i will say he did all right in captain underpants but yeah whenever he's the star of something it it all to get hard the wedding ringer yeah he is He's he's he can be an amazing stand-up comedian, but much like with uh, Chris Rock and Chris Tucker and um, Bernie, not so much Bernie Mac. Bernie Mac managed to get some solid roles uh, as time went on, especially after the Ocean's movies. But um, uh, Cedric the Entertainer, um, uh, who's another one? Uh, I'm trying to think of the of the comedian in my head. You know who I'm talking about? These. The stand-up comment, and it's not just those guys, but the, you've also got the likes of Wanda Sykes is, can, can be funny, but is normally funnier on stage because they don't really give her, you know, they expect her to do the funny for them. And that's, that's not good. You want, you want to have the funny down, and then the comedic actor will bring that writing to life. You don't want the the comedian to do the to do the funnies for you because 
you need the time to workshop things and write things and do drafts and try things out, see what works. And comedies anymore are just like, hey, we got to get this done quick. We can do this quick and cheap and easy. Just make it up as we go along. And unfortunately, that sort of like auto, that, that sort of auto assemblies kind of comedy just doesn't do it for me anymore. It, it, it's a, it doesn't help that this movie is is front loaded and padded to all hell because it's all it's a simple premise. This could have been ninety minutes, but this movie is almost two hours long, and there's no reason for that. I mean, hell, they even undercut the, the they undercut the comedy like half uh, like after the in the third act, Taron Killen's character goes from being the main antagonist to helping out the main character to base they basically said yeah you're done being the antagonist now and now you get to be a nice guy what, what, what's the point there like why i mean i get the idea of i mean you don't i think supposed things supposed to be like well he showed you and you begrudgingly earned respect not well I, i'm kind of done being a dick now so i get to be nice and try to make him be a different entirely different character than what you set him up to be it's 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 not it's kind of haphazard in that way so, it's fine. Uh, it's not a bad comedy, but it's just one more reason why this style of comedic writing isn't good. I mean, it, it's quick, it's cheap, it makes money because people, most people, aren't going to care because they got their they got their jokes. But it doesn't. You know, these movies aren't going to be remembered, and I think that's the main difference. You. There are movies that rely on improv that include improvisational improvisational humor in it. You know, improv. You know, there are jokes that were improved on in the making. They made it into the final cut, but what you saw was developed and written out and planned. And a lot of the comedies we're getting now are just completely, you know, just churn them out. Don't matter. And I guess that's the whole thing is once you start paying attention to movies as they're being released, you begin to notice the ones that are going to be completely forgettable. The ones that are just like, we're here to make a quick buck and we're out. And they're ne- no one's going to ever remember them after this year. So, what are you going to do? We have been collecting proof of the Smallfoot's existence. Behold, the scroll of invisible wisdom. Imagine the amazing stuff they put on here. This proves nothing! Look, I know what I saw. And I'm going to prove it! <laughs> Wait! Ah, he's gone. Oh, boy. Oh, holy wildness. I should introduce myself. Hi, I'm... Oh, look at you. You're adorable. Uh, Smallfoot? Oh, that's supposed to fall out like that? Warner Brothers, you had me going. You had me worried there for a second. I wasn't sure what to expect from this movie. I mean, it was supposed to come out, once again, like the last two Sony movies, uh, White Boy Rick and Alpha. They were supposed to come out earlier they were they were delayed for months this was supposed to come out at the end of march and it got i'm not sure why i'm gonna double check 
to see if there's a re, you know a reason for it. But basically, this is an original uh, storyline, but well, technically original. It's based on a book by Sergio Pablos called Yeti Tracks. So it's an ad much like um, How to Train Your Dragon, Shrek, uh, Captain Underpants. This is um, this is based. This is technically being adapted into a movie from a kid's book. And I mean, this is the apparently the guy was a Spanish animator and screenwriter who is the creator of the Despicable Me franchise. So that's that's what you're expecting from this. Uh, apparently, the guy used to uh, work animated Frollo in Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, Hades and Hercules, Tantor and Tarzan, uh, Doctor Doppler and Treasure Planet. So this this guy is like this guy is legit as an animator. Uh, I'm not familiar. Character designer in a goofy movie. So he used to be a Disney guy until um, mid-2000s. And he started working for, like, Blue Sky and an Illumination. And then, um, yeah, he wrote the book. He wrote the And he's also going to be doing a, looks like a, a Christmas movie called Klaus. German, Dutch, Scandinavian, given name. No, that's about the name Klaus, not about the, not about, maybe it's, let me see. Sergio Pavel's second new Klaus animation tests. Let's see what that's about. Um, it's been a while since we heard anything about Klaus, the innovative feature film project from an digital 2D animation lover. Oh, it's a 2D animated movie. Interesting. Um, da -da -da, come on. So, hi, kitty. Um, Cinecite's new Montreal mega animation studio will employ 500 and produce nine features, including Klaus. What is this Klaus, though? I'm not, it doesn't have its own Wikipedia page yet, so I don't know what to expect from it. Um, for an announced project, uh, comic anime, Pablo says, doesn't tell me anything about what this Klaus movie is. So let's go back to the wiki, see what those cited sources are. Uh, Toon Boom. Okay. Isn't that the, isn't that the sort of, um, the 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 tool that's been kind of taken over from uh yeah toon boom toon boom animation not something made by toon boom this morning um is that the one i'm thinking of and that the the don't they have the program that toon boom animation supplier software so he's using that software to help animate this movie interest like i'm i'm discovering this at, at, right now as i'm recording so i'm not sure klaus trailer made with tv paint all ages holiday comedy will continue to push in the direction of explored in the trailer complex interactive lighting and sophisticated texturing style so it's a really well well and if you look at the designs and the apparently there's a short film that he worked on but apparently this is this this is like i like i thought this is um Oh, Netflix acquired it, so it's going to be straight to Netflix. I mean, it's not bad, but I was kind of hoping it would be on TV. Uh, not TV, but uh, in theaters. So we'll see. Uh, family Come Klaus with Mark's directorial debut. Da, da, da. Christmas family comedy will tell the story of a desperate postman who inadvertently brings about the genesis of... Sa That's what I figured it was about. It was about a German... Okay, so it's about the origins of Santa Claus in the as a German postman bringing presents to kids. So, uh, that's what to, that's what we're, that's his next project. But what about this movie production? Da, 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 da. Film was, 
apparently Chuck E. Cheese was a partner. Uh, does not say why um, why it was delayed, though. Uh, or if it was delayed at all. I guess it was the trailer premiered in April, and it was always supposed to come out in September. I don't know. For some reason, I want to say it was supposed to come out in March. Um, also, apparently, there was a brief internet meme about... Um, the announcement of Zendaya as the as her as Zendaya's character in the movie. Hold on. Zendaya is Michi. Zendaya. Oh. Okay, so some guy just did a vine. Yeah, it's some guy. It's just some guy, some old vine star doing a a silly video. Weird. Anyway, so yeah, apparently that was a meme. I guess. But anyway, this so yeah, this is from Based on the book by Sergio Pablos, animated by Carrie, uh, well, not animated, but directed by Carrie Kirkpatrick, who was who's worked on James and the Giant Peach, Chicken Run, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Charlotte's Web, The Smurfs, Imagine uh, something called Imagine That, uh, oh, the Eddie Murphy movie, and Over the Hedge. Uh, he also wrote the screenplay English screenplays for. Um, the dub scripts for Secret World of Arietti and from Up on Poppy Hill. So I mean, this guy's this guy this guy is legit when it comes to animation. So, um, yeah, his last uh, apparently he was a story consultant on Early Man. Um, he got a special thanks in the in the uh, George Lucas animated movie Strange Magic. Um, he's been he's a song he's kind of a songwriter. He's been writing for award shows, screenwriter for Smurfs. Last directed movie was Imagine That, so it's been a while. Um, but he also directed Over the Hedge, and then he's been mainly a screenwriter. He also wrote the screenplay for Rescuers Down Under. That was his first uh, credit. So neat. Um, and he, apparently, he's also working on a Chicken Run Two uh, screenplay along the way, and he's also going to be producing the next Scooby Doo animated uh, feature la- feature release. Uh, just called, just dubbed Scooby. So that's a thing. Uh, but yeah, this guy's, this guy's legit. And I was a bit worried because the trailer, um, the re- the recent trailer, the one that showcased more of what the actual story is of the Yetis discovering small feet and seeking them out in the Himalayas and the James Corden character. It's, it's better than I expected it to be. It starts off as one of those kind of generic, like, hey, we're singing a song, it's a kid's movie, da-da-da. Like, there's a big opening number, and then Channing Tatum discovers Smallfoot, and he gets banished, and so he has to bring in Smallfoot to prove he was, was, was telling the truth. And that's just the first half of the movie, because what this movie is also dealing with is predatory sort of reality TV uh, reliance on uh, hits, you, you know, uh, web hits and becoming a meme um, in the guy, it, which is what, because um, basically James Corden's character is like, if 
um, if Steve Irwin or David Attenborough had to resort to faking discoveries in order to drive up, uh, drive up, uh, you know, their, their, their ratings, you know, if they had, if they were, cons- you know, if one of those guys was concerned about rating, ratings issues. So that, and, and they, they definitely round out his character as the movie goes along, which is nice because as he start when he starts out, you definitely can tell he's a bit of a douchebag, but they kind of reveal what his mindset is. And you begin to see, um, him as a, as a three dimensional character. Um, the animation is solid, a- excellent people. You know, these are the same people who've been doing, um, who's the studio behind this? I know it's Warner Brothers, uh, Warner Brothers Animation. So they've got people behind the Lego movie and, um, what else is, apparently they're, uh, oh, um, um, isn't Cloudy with a chance of B-Balls then? Or is that Sony? I want to say... No, they they started out with a Lego movie. So Lego movie, Storks, Batman, Ninjago, and now Smallfoot. So this iteration of Warner Brothers animation is brand new. This is nothing really to do with the old stuff from like the Bugs Bunny era and whatnot. This is it's entirely its own thing. Um, so yeah, they've got... Uh, oh, they're doing a Lego movie that's basically a um, a Wacky Races. So that's, gonna, so that's coming up down the line. Uh, Scooby's come, already been announced, has already been given a release date. That's in 2020. They're doing the Space Jam reboot. They're doing Bone, which is, should be interesting. They've got, they've got their, uh, hands back on Dr. Seuss. They're going to do the Cat in the Hat. Um, Toto. Apparently they're doing another, uh, Wizard of Oz thing from Toto's point of view. Something called the Ice Dragon, based on the novella by George R. R. Martin. Speedy Gonzalez, they're do, giving him a movie. And yeah, uh, meet the Beatles. So they're doing a Beatles sort of. I'm guessing in the same vein as uh, Sergeant Pe- not Sergeant Pepper, um, Yellow Submarine, Coyote versus Acme. That I I love that title right there. I love that title. Uh, but yeah, so it looks like they've got some good stuff coming up down the line from uh, from Warner Brothers for a brand new fledgling version of this um, for of the studio. They're doing all right for themselves. Um, so yeah, this is, for, I, I gotta say, as far as, you know, as far as an original property in terms of film go, film go, you feel, as a, in terms of film and set, you know, it's being adapted from a book, but it's its own thing as a franchise. It's not based on a pre-existing thing like the Lego franchise is. This is actually pretty damn good. Uh, like I mentioned, the the first half is pretty generic as far as kids movies go it's the same sort of stuff you expect it's very heavily reliant on fast motion uh slapstick comedy for a lot of it but as the story builds up that's when it starts getting good because we go we start getting into skepticism and pursuing knowledge and truth and when you know when you know when is telling a lie and, and if telling a lie is important if it protects your friends and family. There's a whole common, the the rapper Common has a musical number in this that is the closest thing we really get to a villain song. There is no villain. And I think that's kind of the days of true villainy are over. Now we are dealing with antagonists. So we don't really have villain songs like we used to with this from the likes of Disney and people who are trying to imitate Disney. But we're 
seeing a more well-rounded, three-dimensional antagonist. And I think that's ultimately better because it's showcasing that, hey, these are just people whose viewpoints are kind of jutting up against and challenging the protagonist. They're not necessarily evil. And I think that's a nice touch that, that's been going on with kids' movies now. So we don't need... There are definitely villains. You know, Disney's providing some, some, you know, some villainous characters. But there's not that sort of over-the-top, uh, almost like silent movie-era mustache-twirling villain anymore. It's more of... They're, they're providing three-dimensional, well-rounded antagonists, like I said. Um, and the, I, I, so, yeah, but Common's musical number is a this glorious, long-form... I mean, he raps it, so he's not singing it, but he's rapping out basically the backstory of the entire film. He is providing exposition in the form of a musical number, and it's glorious. It's the, it's the highlight of the movie for me, personally. Because um, it's got amazing animation, and on top of that, you're seeing why this character does what he does, and it's revelate, it's revelatory in its in its execution, and I high, and I love it for that. I will say the wo- the lowest part is James Corden tries to do a rap. Once again, there's a lot of hit, a lot of there's a musical number like a, like an actual musical like everybody sings. But James Corden raps over "Under Pressure" by Bo- David Bowie and Queen, which I was dreading was going to be Ice Ice Baby. I mean, we're in the Himalayas. We're dealing with a lot of snow and ice. I was expecting Ice Ice Baby. Thank you for being David Bowie and Queen. Thank you for that movie. But at the same time, much like um, Little Ice rapping over the beat, the bass line to, I, to uh, Under Pressure, James Corden just raps over the, the karaoke version of the song. And instead of singing the actual lyrics, he raps his own backstory. It's, yeah, that one's not as good. Mainly because James Corden is not a good rapper, like Common, and mainly because that backstory didn't need to be a musical number. Ultimately, it's well animated, but it's the weakest song, and honestly, the lowest point for me in the movie. But I, I, oh, I ended up really liking this movie by the end. It gains speed, much like a snowball rolling downhill. It gains speed the closer it gets to the bottom, and it really picks up once. Um, which we hit the halfway mark, and we get that's when we start to understand more about the Yeti, the, Yeti, the history of the Yeti culture, and we start to see more of like there's a whole sequence where a but where the where the four main young Yeti characters are down in I'm guessing is you know is in this nameless Himalayan village, uh, and this is also an eclectic cast. Um, you've got Channing Tatum as the main character. He does all he's does pretty well. You can you don't really recognize him. Uh, Common you recognize. Um, James Corden, you can recognize, uh, I'm not sure if it's Zendaya or Zendaya. I've heard both. Zendaya, it is Zendaya. I was right. So it's Zendaya. Um, she plays the love interest character and she's not specifically just, you know, love interest character. She is, you know, she has her own, you know, she's, she's a intelligent driven character who kind of, kind of is the focal point for why, the main Channing Tatum's character does what he does, and she's pretty and she's good in that. Um, Danny DeVito is Danny DeVito. Uh, he's basically a stunt cast for his character. Gina Rodriguez is good. Um, Yara Shahidi, I'm not familiar with. Apparently, she's on Blackish. She plays um, the she plays 
James Corden's uh, assistant and producer. I guess I think it's producer. And then um, uh, LeBron James, <laughs> former Cavalier, current L.A. Laker, and you know, new Hollywood mogul LeBron James is unrecognizable as sort of the big dude Yeti that is um, – the character's name is Gwangi. And he's a big, curly-haired Yeti. You see him in the teaser trailer where he's the one that's like, or is it? And he's the one scaring the little kids. And uh, in the movie, he's kind, of, he's, you know, he's kind of comic relief. And I didn't recognize LeBron James at all. I had no idea that was him. I knew LeBron James was in this movie. I did not recognize him once in, this mo- in my viewing. So as far as athletes turned actors go, I still think, ooh. Who would be the best athlete turned actor? That's an idea for a discussion point down the line. I think the next time we see one of those movies, or the next time I see a movie where the main star is not is a former athlete, I'll make that the discussion. Because that's an interesting deep dive I'm going to have to do. Um, suffice to say that, yeah, th- this movie is, this movie manages to make up for its generic opening. Like it's 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 a great it's showcasing that you can be you know progressive minded but still know where your limits are and still you know it's the basic uh, theme of this movie is you should always be pursuing the truth and you know make you know doing right by your fellow you know by your fellow person by your fellow you know whatever you know you should always you know you should always do right by your people by your people. And you should all, you should always be pursuing tr- the truth and seeking out the truth and supporting the truth. So, I I support this movie. I like this movie, and uh, I I, th- I hope it's going to gain some steam, uh, maybe in the home video market. But I I don't I'm not seeing a lot of buzz for it. I, I think that's kind of the problem is that it doesn't. All, it, while it's good, it's got a great theming behind the movie. You don't notice that in the trailers. You only see that once you watch the movie, and unfortunately, uh, you don't. Re- there's not a real push uh, for uh, for families to see this movie, especially since we're leading into you know some more kid like the House of the Clock and Walls just came out last week. I think this is pro- the problem is this is geared towards a much younger audience that maybe is already in school and they're not going to go to the movies as much. And I don't know, but. Maybe this maybe would have been better off for November instead of September because it's snowy and it's a, it could tie it into the holidays. We'll see. Uh, I hope it does. I hope it. I hope it's able. I hope it picks up some traction because I think it's a decent movie. I think it's showcasing that Warner Brothers Animation is capable of more than just pump, pumping out Lego movies. You know, so Smallfoot. Y- you know, you you earned my respect. Good for you. Take your job too seriously. This really isn't funny, dude. Help me! Somebody! You came here to be scared, right? I can't arrest people for doing their job. Welcome to Hellfest. Can you let me out of here? 
So you know how Halloween kind of spearheaded this surge in slasher movies during the 80s? Imagine this was made... This I imagine this was made in that same vein. This feels like one of those follow-ups to Halloween kind of slasher movies. And this movie... Hellfest! Hellfest! You have to say it like you're a metalhead. Hellfest! Um, it's um, from editor-turned-director... Uh, Forgot to write down his name, but uh, he's the editor of Get Out, and um, there's something else. Gregory Plotkin is the direct is the is the director here. Get Out, Happy Death Day. He's a Blum. He's been a Blumhouse uh, editor. He also direct. He did. This isn't his debut. He directed on the Ghost Dimension, Paranormal Activity, the Ghost Dimension, which I think was like five or six. Um, but he's been mainly an editor for a lot of stuff and. This is, I think this, this is his second feature-length film so so far. Um, okay, no, this is the fourth. He directed the fourth Paranormal Activity. And then he's been mainly an editor. Like, he even edited this movie. So he was the writer, he was the director and the main editor on it. And then, of course, he did edited Game Night earlier this year. So he's, 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 he's mainly a, he's been mainly a horror uh, editor. But this is his second feature-length film. And I gotta say, it's actually pretty damn good. I know it's not getting a lot of good. I know not, a lot of people are are dissing on it, but for a campy '80s B movie slasher, it's right in that same vein. Imagine this in the same vein as like one of the Friday the Thirteenth or Halloween sequ- direct-to-video sequels. This is kind of like that. Um, the premise here is basically a traveling. Horror-themed amusement park stops by in a town, and our main characters are a bunch of college students who go visit, who attend it, and it's a damn good horror park. It reminds me a lot of uh, Cedar Point up here uh, in Ohio does Hollow Weekends, and it reminds me a lot of that kind of production value. There's a lot of good money going into the makeup and the props and the costuming, and it's a really well-executed, um, like, I could imagine... Aside from being hunted down by a serial killer, uh, I could imagine attending something like Hellfest. In fact, a great tie-in I think would have been uh, would be to do like self 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 run like individual like Hellfest coming to St. Louis, you know Hellfest coming to the pit coming to the tri- New York tri-state area, something like that, you know. You know something like like Hellfest travels around through the month of October. In the same setup as this movie, I think that would be. I think that would work great. Um, but yeah, the movie it's it's not a very you know it's not about story. It's about I mean the premise is what it is. It's four college, technically no six college students, three three female friends and their and their significant other boyfriends, and it's about them being stalked by a serial killer wearing base essentially a Michael Myers inspired mask. You know, it's very much inspired by the likes of, you know, it's more more in line with the um, Rob Zombie version of Michael Myers than the original one. But it's definitely taking inspiration from Michael Myers. And the dude is going around the park stalking, stalking, t- stalking teenagers and stalking these young adults. And eventually comes across our main group of kids and he decides to start, pick, you know, taking them down one by one. And it's him stalking them. And unfortunately, he looks like some of the actors... Working in the park, so he's able to blend in seamlessly. 
And so, uh, really, and I think the thing is that the thing that helps it is that there's only one known name in the entire cast, and he's a glorified cameo. And that would be horror legend and former Allstate spokesman Tony Todd. Yep, the Candyman, um, Ben from the remake of Night of the Living Dead. Um, I think he was Death, whatever he was in the in the Final Destination movies. Um, what else was he? Uh, Bl- yeah, Bloodworth in Final Destination in the Final Destination movies. Apparently he was the main character on this show called Splatter. Um, I mean, the dude's a horror icon. Uh, Reverend Zombie and Hatchet. Something called Minotaur. House of Grimm. The dude, yeah, the, if, you, if you're if you familiar with kind of cheapy, cheap, you know, cheapo C-list, C-grade um, uh, horror movies, agoraphobia, something called agoraphobia a couple of years ago. Uh, Night of the Living Dead, Darkest Dawn, uh, which I think is an animated movie, looks like. It says he's his voice. Um, Dead of Summer, The Witching Hour. Yeah, Victor Crowley. Uh, something something based on that guy. Uh, so yeah, this T- Tony Todd is a horror icon, still doing horror movies to this day. And unfortunately, he's a glorified cameo in this. He's basically playing up a sort of MC character that only gets shown in one scene. And I think that's the biggest disappointment is that you get icon tony todd but apparently he was only available for one day of shooting so you would so you only get him for that one day and then he's gone i feel like he should have been the main antagonist of the movie but not the main antagonist but like the main driving point of like he's all throughout the park so to speak he's like the guy running things and you're wondering if he's in on the killings or not and unfortunately he that they, they that's kind of left out and he's just basically one scene glorified cameo, Tony Todd. But the other character, the other actors are pretty decent. Um, Bex, Ta- don't know anybody of these people. Bex Taylor, Klaus, Rain Edwards, Amy Forsyth is the main uh, is the main girl. Uh, apparently, she's something called. She was in the Hulu's The Path, and something called Rise, which I think is about Broadway musicals or something. I have no idea what Rise is about. But yeah, she is the main actress, the main girl in this. Uh, you've also got um, Matt Mercurio, uh, Christian James, and Robbie Atoll. Atoll? Robbie Atoll? A T T A L. Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with any of these actors, and they pe- this appears to be their biggest uh, film. Uh, uh, so far for the most of them um but they do all right they, you know they're great they're great uh horror actor kids like most of the teenage you know the young adults playing the leads in these horror movies aren't real big names or they're rising stars so it's hard to say where these kids will end up uh apparently rain edwards was in the macgyver reboot and the bold and the beautiful and then uh, Bex Taylor Klaus is actually my favorite character. She plays this like punk chick who um, is really into the horror stuff. Uh, she is Pidge in Voltron. Okay, and then she's Sin in Arrow. So she's kind of known, but she's not like big known. Apparently, she was also in the Scream TV series. So yeah, she's she. You know, once again, these are all stars on the rise. Like if any of these young actors turn into something better. 
in a couple years from now, I can be like, oh yeah, that person from Hellfest, they're in a new thing. Neat. But yeah, um, I didn't mention that the guard in the movie that I thought was H. John Benjamin was uh, is going to be in the live-action remake of, of Lady and the Tramp. That was a fun revelation for me. But at the same, yeah, at the same time, this is this like this isn't something groundbreaking. This is this is like a you know this is just a tribute to um, the '80s Halloween-inspired slasher movies. It has some great gore. Unfortunately, it kind of it kind of cuts away from a lot of the gore. But there's some. But for what we see, even though it's not focused on, it's not a splatter movie. But the gore we do get is is really inventive. So, uh, I, as far as horror movies go, I think this is one that you can watch. This is easily one that you can enjoy every Halloween. And if you're a horror fan, then I think you, this might be for you. Although, it may actually be too tame for, for, for some horror fans. I'm not sure. But I, I recommend it. You know, for somebody who's not as into horror, I actually enjoyed it. I enjoyed myself. A lot. There's just you know some minor things that I didn't get. It. You know, the wasted, wasted nature of your Tony Todd, and the fact that it does kind of peter out towards the end, and some of the kills get you know kind of some of the kills are kind of lackluster in the second half. But for the most part, this movie is actually a really well executed horror movie. So if you're horror, if you're if you're, if you're into that kind of '80s horror '80s slasher movie. I recommend this. This is a great send-up of those movies. It's the roller coaster thrill of a lifetime. <laughs> You'll laugh with Totoro. <laughs> You'll cry with Totoro. <laughs> Best of all, you'll fly with Totoro. Since the time you were small, you've dreamed of adventures this tall. Now, the new classic children's storybook flies to life on the screen from world-renowned master animation director Hayao Miyazaki. An animated adventure for children of all ages. My neighbor, Totoro. A Tokuma Shoten production from 50th Street Chroma Films. Last up this week, we've got September's entry into the Ghibli Fest 2018 series, and that is the iconic My Neighbor Totoro. And I've got to say, this movie is as old as I am. In fact, it's a little bit older than I am by a couple of months, by like six months. And it's, it, it looks like it could have come out yesterday. It is timeless animation and storytelling. And I watched the dub version. And the dub cast is excellent. You've got Kath Susie providing extra roles. And then, of course, our, your, main, uh, your main actresses for, the, for, the, for Satsuki and um, May are the, the Fanning sisters. Dakota and Elle are the English actresses for Satsuki and May, respectively. And this Because this is the uh, 2005 Disney dub. And, of course, then you've got Tim Daly, uh, voice of Superman uh, from the DC Animated Universe, like Justice League, uh, Batman and Superman in the Animated Series. That's that, that, uh, and he, he's great as their dad, uh, Kusakabe. Uh, Pat Carroll. How do I know her from? Pat Carroll plays Granny, who is kind of the 
uh, elder woman uh, in the town who helps them out. She is, oh my god, a Ursula. Oh my god, a Ursula. Ursula is granny in in that version. I, I love it. And she's still kicking. She's apparently old lady Crowley entangled the animated series. Yeah. Yeah, Pat Carroll. You kick ass. Anyway, um, Leia Salonga. A lot of, di- lot of familiar Disney voices. Leia Salonga being um, Jasmine in Disney's Aladdin. Apparently she was Fantine in Les Miserables. Neat. She's also a, a, the singing voice of Mulan. So... Was she the, was she the, I don't think she was the, yeah, she was the uncredited singing voice of Jasmine, not the, um, not the, uh, not the spoken voice. That, that, that was Linda Larkin who voiced, uh, Jasmine, not, Jasmine's non-singing dialogue. Uh, but yeah, she, she, she's, she's in a minor role as the mom, Mrs. Kusakabe. And then you've got Jim Cummings as Razul and Farouk. Farouk. Oh, no, that's Aladdin, not... I was going to say, that doesn't sound right. Um, Frank Welker is Totoro. Perfect casting. Uh, like I mentioned, you've got Kath Susie. I heard her voice. Russie Taylor, um, Matt Adler, Paul Butcher, Cheryl Chase. Uh, Tress McNeil uh, plays Miss Hara. I don't remember who Miss Hara was, but yeah, um, you know, if you're familiar with voice actors, you're, you can, you can hear some of these people in the Disney dub and yeah, the Disney dub is just, I think it's equivocable to the, to the Japanese dub for this one, at least. I'm not, sometimes you can argue whether or not a, um, whether or not a whether or not a one of the Disney dubs is better than the, than the lot, than the original, uh, Japanese dub. But for this movie, Disney dub is at least comparable. Comparable at the least, better depending on your preferences. I won't say it's definitively better, but it's damn good. And yeah, the storyline, um, while Spirited Away definitely uh, thematically follows a lot of the Alice in Wonderland sort of idea, this takes a lot more imagery. Like the the, the little hedge mate, the hedgerow. Where um, Satsuki and May crawl through, that definitely feels like the rabbit hole that Alice goes down. Um, but, but once again, I think that's kind of one of Hayao Miyazaki's uh, likes to t- t- likes to tie into those themes without necessarily cribbing from Alice in Wonderland. But I mean, it's hard not to not to see the comparisons. Um, like I said, this is a fantastic movie. It's 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 gorgeously animated, and it's it's so you know what it is. It's wholesome, and not a lot of kids' movies are just you know they're not they some kids' movies. And I'm going to get into this during the discussion, but there, there's a tendency for some kids' movies, especially American kids' movies, to rely on slapstick for their comedy and be be manic without ever really do you know providing anything of of real depth and this isn't like deep this isn't something deep by my ghibli standards but it relies on something you know more tried and true this sort of idea that here's just something wholesome something that makes you feel good while you're watching it whereas something along the lines of the illumination movies or some some of the lower dreamworks movies 
are feel like you're watching something that's very cynically made. Like, eh, kids, it's for kids. Who gives a damn? Here, there's a lot of effort and thought put into uh, why, you know, certain shots and certain sequences that really emphasize what the movie is going for. And I can't help but recommend this movie if you haven't seen it already. And if you have, um, you, you should still be able to see it this week as part of Ghibli Fest. And if you, you got to see it on the big screen. It is well worth it. Whether it's the subtitle version or the dub version, if you get the chance, see this movie on the big screen. It's well worth it. And yeah, it, it it's top t- I can see why Totoro became the um, mascot for Ghibli. Where, while Spirited Away is probably their de facto best, and uh, Princess Mononoke is my personal favorite, Totoro is iconic in what it brought to uh, how it sort of presented Ghibli as Jap- as Jap- Japanese as Japan's answer to Disney. Ghibli as you know as comparable and as you know as almost almost in some ways better than a lot of Disney animations, depending on which era of Disney you're talking about. Ghibli is proven it, it is, it is you know, equally as good in the movies it provides when it comes to things like this. So, My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> it's just as good as the first time you saw it. And especially if you're like that age where you're starting to have your own kids and you want to show them something that's just genuinely sweet and good and and fun and whimsical. This is perfectly made for families and, ki- and especially kids. This gets how kids think. And not a lot of kids movies do. They're very cynically written. So, I'll get into I'll get more into that during the discussion, but to end the to end the review portion, My Neighbor Totoro, best thing I saw this weekend. <laughs> doesn't technically doesn't technically count, but you know, it's it feels good to see that again and especially see it on the big screen. So, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm gonna I'm going to uh, break down more of my issues uh, with when it comes to children's and family entertainment. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together, we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us, Living in the Stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks. I'm doing more and more episodes, and as I get, I go as the numbers get higher and higher, I have harder time tracking what I've discussed on this show, and I, I'm honestly surprised when I come across a topic that I've never discussed, just because it's so, you know, it's one of those things that makes a perfect discussion topic, and apparently I haven't really discussed what I, you know, what I consider to be ideal family entertainment. That's never really come up with all the kids' movies I see. So, 
since we've since I saw Smallfoot this weekend and I got to see my neighbor Totoro on the big screen, I decided to make the discussion point what I consider to be good family entertainment. Now, considering the fact that I am a single, you know, man with no kids, you know, take my take my opinions with a grain of salt, but the movies that I consider to be made for families and for kids specifically, like, that's the thing. I have no problem enjoying things made for kids or made for families. A lot of TV animation is made for kids and families. And I, I enjoyed the Captain Underpants movie and especially the TV series. I enjoy My Little Pony for the most part. You know, I'm not as into it as I used to be when it first came out, but I still enjoy the show and I still keep up with it. And I still support, you know, the creators and and parts of the fan community as well. Um, yeah, I still enjoy the 90s stuff that I grew up with, you know. And I, I still enjoy Disney and Don Bluth. And I think there's merit to in, in the creation of something for kids. And I think watching recently uh, the... Um, the Mr. Rogers documentary has kind of shown that there was this definitely this even back then there was this cynicism for what we showed kids and the idea that kids entertainment can you know is best suited to be lowest common denominator put literally anything up there and they'll watch it and he kind of brought he's kind of pioneered the idea that kids entertainment doesn't have to be slapstick clowning mindless garbage he you can provide kids especially younger kids with something wholesome something worthwhile something that benefits them in the long run and i can i'm more i'm can i'm definitely of that mindset more so now as, as i get older and i would much rather show, showcase kids something good rather than something you know but the you know, of course, then the problem becomes you don't get to decide what your kid likes. Your kid's tastes will change; they will develop as they grow older, and you ultimately have no control over what your kids like. I remember specifically; I am in the house where it happened years ago, 2013. I want to say maybe 2014. It must have been 2014 because it was already on Netflix. I wanted to show maybe 2015, but I wanted to show my nephews Paranorman. Because they were starting to get into horror stuff. Here's this kids' movie. It's you know it's got horror elements. It's definitely it, it can definitely be pretty scary. I love it. Still love Paranorman, and yet my nephews they they were used to much harder stuff. They were used to PG-13s and you know more adult, more mature horror stuff. So when I'm showing my these my kids. Not my kids. They're not my kids. Thank God. Uh, when I'm showing these kids a horror movie made for kids, they are not into it as much. And I lost my and I lost and I lost my hat at them. You know, I lost my head, and I yelled at my one nephew. And I remember grabbing him by the shoulders and being like, "Would you just shut up and watch the movie?" Because they would not shut up about when's the scary part coming. Because they were little brats. They were little. ADD, you know, wild, manic brats. And they're getting better now as they get older. But at the same time, I was showing them something below what they're used to. They were already watching much more mature things at that point in time. And I was just, I just wasn't aware of that. 
So, yeah, I think, but so I think I'm more, I think I just had to deal with the fact that my nephews were getting older and they aren't going to be into, they were looking for something more visceral, more, more energy, something that provides them with what they're used to, something that can stimulate them in one way or another. And sadly, Paranorman is definitely slower, more ethereal, more, more, um, you know, it has more of a horror vibe to it than an outright scary vibe. And they were looking for quick, like, jump scary kind of stuff. They weren't into horror theming and horror feelings. They were into something quick and visceral. Something like a slasher. Something like, uh, a, a, you know, something like a jump scare kind of movie. That's what they wanted. And I don't know if they're still into that. It's been... It's been you know, several years since then, and tastes change radically, wildly. Things I was into in 2012, I've since grown out of. And, like, I specifically remember being into old era John Tron and Game Grumps, and I've since become... that Those things are, don't interest me anymore. I'm more interested in what they're doing now. I think what they're doing now is the, even better than what they used to do. So it, it, your tastes will change. Your, your tastes are always fluctuating as you yourself change and, uh, and grow and become your own person more and more. And so, you're, and so too will your, what you look for in your entertainment. And so this is not – I say this all because I'm not trying to dictate what you should consider good entertainment, kids, kids and family entertainment. This is specifically – what I consider to be the ideal sort of family and kids entertainment. And I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, Mr. Rod, you know, Fred Rogers pointed this out in the documentary in the, in the archival footage. There's sort of this pejorative notion of that. Something is made for kids. Something is made for families. So it's not, doesn't have, it has to be, you know, it has to be lowest common denominator, something non-threatening, something not really well thought out. Something not very interesting. Just it, something fluff. Something pop, you know, popcorny. Something that doesn't provide a lot of thought into it. And for the longest time, kids entertainment, it was exactly that. Now, as we get older, we can start to analyze what our entertainment was trying to say, as, you know, with them with and revisit our old um, entertainment, like revisiting Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. That show was way ahead of its time, more than I thought. Like the first, like I like I mentioned in the review, the first episode of Mister Rogers was literally about the Vietnam War. You don't expect that from a kids show, you know. And I think that's also leads into what I think is the biggest is the biggest controversy when it comes to kids entertainment specifically. Where do you draw the line? What is the line in mature content that is too mature for kids? Versus what they need to hear. And I think Fred Rogers highlighted best how kids, you know, parents and kids should not shy away from these darker, more mature topics as long as it has to do with the kid. You know, the kid has to understand and be affected by the theme. So that's why a lot of family entertainment and a lot of kids movies will deal with loss death um growing up 
you know, being challenged and, you know, realizing what, realizing something, you know, something, something isn't always what you, what it seems to be, you know, thing, things that happen to you and things you begin to realize as you grow up, those will always be emblematic of kids in movies. Like, perfect, let's use My Neighbor Totoro, for example. The movie deals with, as an underlying theme, the the cloud hanging overhead of whether or not their mom will live. There's always, and there's even, a, and one of the, the third act climax specifically deals with concern over whether or not their mom is dying. Specifically dying. And that's something that a lot of kids will deal with. And you can't, you can't help at what age a child has to deal with the loss of a parent or the fear of loss of a parent. And so that's an underlying theme that reaches a boiling point in My Neighbor Totoro. You see that, in, like the opening montage in Up shows, how, shows this man's entire life. And you see his joys, his loss, where, how he became who, he, who we know him at the start of the movie. Pixar was real for the longest time was great in following that old Disney model, that old Don Bluth model, where it's not shying away from mature themes and topics and yet telling them in a way that kids can understand. And that's not even to say that mortality and loss, things of that nature are too much. I mean, some parents do think that's too mature. They don't, they fear for when they have to teach their kids about that. And I don't blame them because it's a hard topic to help a young mind comprehend. But something a lot of parental groups, and especially conservative parental groups, not to, you know, I mean, you believe what you want to believe, but there's this notion that sexuality itself and identity is somehow shouldn't, you know, your kids can't, can't comprehend those things. Things about race, things that are things that affect a lot of, of you know adult society. You forget that that also affects kids kids in society as well, because kids learn from their adult surroundings. And so, if the kids are seeing either their adults are racist, bigoted, homophobic, misogynist, they see those things and they internalize them, and that's how they think. Well, I have to behave like this. That's how my parents, that's how my parental figurehead, that's how my grandparents acted, that's how my uncle acted, that's how my friends acted. Kids will, kids and everybody, everybody internalizes certain behaviors based on how they see it in society. And that's why it's so important to showcase certain, you know, certain ideals into kids at a young age. Uh, not movie related specifically, but Steven Universe is is proof that you know tra- and tra- you know members of the trans community have been open about how when when you know when kids ask you know are you a boy or a girl are you trans uh, and they say well yes I am and they be like oh you're like such and such character from Steven Universe I'm not familiar with Steven Universe you know but you're like this character from Steven Universe I get you know having those characters showing those characters to children. And showing that they're just people, and 
here are their issues. Here are their, you know, here's who they are. Here's, here's, here's what they have to deal with. And showing kids these things helps them to comprehend much more mature topics than they're normally dealing with. But, it, but also shows them that, you know, the best, a lot of the way, best ways to deal with those is with kindness and acceptance and with tolerance. And, and especially with, and especially with some, you know, in some cases, just tolerance. And my sister and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. I, I've completely lost track of time anymore. We're, we're three months out from the end of the year. I've completely, I have no idea where the time has gone. So, but at any rate, my sister and I were talking about how things have changed based on the media we watch as kids. And she is a zenial, an exennial, however you want to pronounce it. She was that middle ground between Gen X and millennial. She's not fully, she's later generation, she's later generation X, but early enough in the stages of millennial, because we're just making these demarcations up as we go. We have no real, this isn't based on anything other than observation. But but she remembers specifically how the media she grew up with started to make that shift between, and showcasing um, ideas of acceptance of race, of, you know, and showcasing empowerment to women. And a lot of these, a lot of the stuff that we take for granted from kid, from kid shows in the late 80s and early 90s have become became internalized, and so she and I, growing up with these with this kind of media, began to realize it that that stuff ultimately doesn't matter in the long run. But at the same, you know, but that's easier for you know that that also leads into the discussion of that's easy for you know white kids to learn, but a lot of people of color still have to deal with that fact because society never really changed. It's it's just you know. Millennial kids learned that, hey, you shouldn't judge people by the color of their skin. Yeah, that's great and all, but society never has st- is still dealing with, though, you know, though that the society has never really, you know, come to terms with its long, long, you know, long-reaching history, as it were. We just taught our kids not to be dicks for the most part. And even then, there's no guarantee that that ultimately worked. But we are seeing, a sh- you know, we do start to see shifts as you introduce these minority characters to kids and give them a um, reference point for interacting within the real world. Like a kid watching Hey Arnold sees a group of black kids hanging out and it's like, oh, that's like Gerald and his family. Or, oh, or, or maybe he watches, um, you know, any other number, any number of shows at the time. Like he could be watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and he'd be like, oh, I have that reference point. So, I mean, like, I, I recognize and I like the, these people I see in my media. So I know not to think of those people as, you know, something negative. It's, hey, they're those people. They're somebody I, re- they're something I recognize from what I've seen. So I know not to judge them as, say, criminals or uh, threatening, so to speak. They recognize that just, you know, people, people of a different color hanging out are just people. So there is merit to teaching kids acceptance. But the next step would be to teach kids of not just, not just, you know, the idea of not seeing race 
is kind of outdated now. Yes, it's good to not judge people by their race, but 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 that didn't help the kids of you know of a minority race when it came to ex- be living within their society. We have to teach people to see race and to accept people you know and to accept whatever those you know aspects of race are you know and we you know people within their own groups can criticize certain things and can have certain discussions and the biggest thing that i've had to come to terms with and learn is when to keep my damn full mouth shut there are some conversations you can take part in some conversations you need to let play out and have those people speak their mind i don't need to speak my mind when it comes to race politics for the most part i'm better off raising the voices of people uh, of other people of you know of my of minority people of co- you know people of color people you know women and you know people you know and sexual minorities people who are lgbt uh, QIA and you know people who are in those minority groups I'm better elevating those vo- their voices than I am speaking over them and really where I speak best is when it comes to mental health somebody who deals with clinical depression somebody who deals with being on the being on the autism spectrum that's where my expertise comes in that's where my voice is best used so yeah I'm not going to get too much into that so to speak because i'm already derailing a bit uh suffice to say that there's the whole point of that you know diatribe that that digression was to to emphasize that these topics can be brought up to kids and they can understand it if you know how to speak to them if you know how to under teach kids these things they can understand Mr. Rogers was able to talk to kids about the the unjustness of the Vietnam War, the cha- the loss of life at the Challenger explosion, depression, straight up. Dep- there was an entire song between da- Daniel Tiger and I forget her name, but the main um the main the live action female in Mr. Rogers, uh. Uh, neighbor there we go um betty aberlin looks like lady aberlin yeah betty aberlin's character she sings a a duet with daniel tiger about hating yourself essentially having that sort of level of depression where you think hateful thoughts about yourself suicidal thoughts even and at no point is Daniel Tiger cured. The duet ends with Daniel Tiger repeating his verse of whether or not he feels that he is loved, that he whether or not he deserves to live. All of that hateful, hateful mentality that people with depression can deal with. At the same time, his friend Lady Aberlin is singing to him that he is loved, that he is that he sh- that he should not be thinking those things. And that no matter what happens, he is loved. So by showing two kids how best to treat somebody who's dealing with those thoughts, 
And also to showcase that you are not alone in thinking those thoughts, he helped to, you know, show them and remind them to that they are loved. Number one, the, the, the people thinking that thought are loved. And to those who aren't thinking those thoughts, that they should remind those people who are that they are loved. So I think it, you know, I mean, I'm talking a lot about TV, but it, it deals with a lot of, you know, media in general. Because, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot. Most of the main models are of kid entertainment are either ed- educational for, like, really young kids or they follow the 80s. Uh, Reagan era of kids entertainment where it's like buy our buy our things buy the things buy all of the things here's a thing you should buy the thing and so there's been a, there was a real big push throughout the 80s of like here's the thing and you should buy the thing and it, it cared less about storytelling as much about making money and the 90s did see a re- return to form of like no, we should be telling kids unique stories and have and, you know have good ideas to sh- that they should you know to encourage, and that's when you saw the Disney Renaissance model. This, I mean, Don Bluth was prominent throughout the '80s, so thankfully there was something for kids to watch that was had a darker tone to it, had more mature themes, and was willing to talk to kids on a, on a level that more a lot of adults are afraid to do. So there, so I mean, if you were a Don Bluth kid in the '80s, you probably, you know, you're probably messed up as an adult because you saw such weird, dark imagery for the longest time. But at the same, but you're also more well-rounded. Whereas a kid who only grew up on like wholesome, I mean, wholesome can be either good or bad. Totoro is wholesome, but whimsical and still willing to tackle certain themes. But wholesomeness in the absence of reality is almost like a cushion. It cushions you from, you know, the harshness of the world around you, but it doesn't prepare you for it. Whereas Mr. Rogers and things of that nature, Don Bluth films and a lot of the lot, you know, there are certainly older Disney movies, but certainly a lot of the Disney model will remind kids that, you know, the world isn't perfect. But as long as you do your best and you are a good person and you, you, you treat others well, that you will ultimately see, you know, see the benefits of the world. So I think the wholesomeness comes in when it's in lieu of storytelling and in lieu of reality is, is, is what people consider like Caillou. Things like Caillou or Peppa Pig or, or, um... A lot of that, you know, Disney Junior sort of, like, almost mindless kids shows where it's like, you're, I mean, depending on, I mean, if you break things down, it's not quite like that. You could say the same thing about My Little Pony. I mean, number one, it was, it was created to sell the thing, buy the thing, kids. And it's still built on the model of buy the thing for, uh, from us kids. But the show, as it grew, as it went on, that the worst of it was... The, the 2000s era direct-to-video movies that Hasbro released, which are just the worst. Even fans of, like, the old My Little Pony show and the current iteration of the show, they all agree that that 2000s era of My Little Pony is straight-up garbage. It is 
mindless, you know, flashing images, no, no substance whatsoever. It is really overly sweetened, pillowy candy. Sweetened and sugary to the point where it gives you a headache. It doesn't, it's not enjoyable. It's a, it's headache inducing. And some kids have a higher tolerance for it than others, but most people watching it are just like, that's the kind of thing you put on to shut kids up, not to enjoy with them. And ideally, your kids' entertainment should be enjoyable to the parents as well. Not in the same vein of like, oh, Shrek included references to sex, and here's references to songs and movies that you remember. Like when kid, when you make a reference to Pulp Fiction or The Shining or Scarface in a kid's movie. That's not, you know, making adding in those elements to make a reference that goes over the kids' heads is stupid. It's, it doesn't add anything. It just distracts parents long enough to be like, oh, yeah, I remember that thing. Man, I wish I was watching that thing instead. So, ideally, you should be able, you shouldn't rely wholly on pop culture references or, you know, slapstick and motion, you know, motion and high energy, manic behavior to entertain kids. You can still do that without, I mean, those elements can still be there. They should not be the driving force of of the of of the medium, and we are you know we are starting to see as more people who grew up with with that sort of wholesome at I keep saying wholesome but I use it a, a, a differently that sort of well meaning and well intentioned you know kids entertainment they want when they want to make kids stuff. They want to do it and provide this thing that isn't just following, you know, trends. And here's what's trending on our social media. And here's what the kids are watching on the YouTubes. You know, there's a way to present kids entertainment that isn't mindless filler for, for all intents and purposes. Not that those things are bad, but you, want, you ultimately do want to strive for more. And mindless filler is great when you're bored and you just want, just want something on. Yeah, I mean, I put, I, like I've been putting old rap critic and Todd in the Shadows episodes on the back on in the background because I'm so familiar with them. They've become mindless to me, but they're ultimately not bad. It's just I familiarize with them enough, familiarize myself with them enough that it's. It's like you know something that something that's that can be used as background noise while I'm doing other things because I still enjoy the thing. I don't need to watch it like I would something new, something I haven't seen before. And with I feel like the best way to describe kids' entertainment is you've got the Disney model, which is you know nice wholesome family entertainment, but some that. The best of it isn't afraid to shy away from mature themes. The first, you know, the first movie Disney ever made had an entire sequence that felt straight out of a horror movie. And, you know, played around with the main character supposedly dying. You know, like, unless you, even if, you know, you may have been familiar with the story, but you're still witnessing what is essentially the death of this young girl, 14 year old, 14 years old, technically Pinocchio deals with excess and you know, how you shouldn't 
live to excess and give in to your vices or else you'll basically be turned into a jackass. Um, you'll become a jackass if you rely, if you give in too much to your own vices and that your conscience will guide you. So it didn't shy away from harsh truths, but it presented them in a way that kids and adults could see, could understand, and could enjoy. My favorite Disney movie, and my favorite animated movie, and my one of, arguably my favorite movie is Bambi. And it, was noto- it is notorious for the death of the mom. It did not shy away. And it was before Bambi, you had Snow White, who was near death and brought back to life by magic. And so you had that precedence set. And, you know, fairy tale magic will, you know, you're dealing with a lot of magical elements. Pinocchio had a lot of magical elements. He, would, he died and was brought back to life by the fairy and turned into a real boy. You know, Dumbo, Dumbo didn't necessarily deal with death, so there wasn't necessarily, so you didn't have that needing magic to bring back somebody back to, back to life from the dead. So when you've already kind of set the precedent for in half of your movies that magic will save the day and bring people back from the dead, for this little kid, for this little baby critter to come to the realization that, no, magic's not going to save the day. She gone. She's dead. She's not coming back. And, and you have to deal with that. And he does eventually come to terms with that. Which is kind of why I enjoy Bambi 2. Because it explores that notion a lot in the movie. It's a, not a great movie. It's not as good as the first one. But by, impl- by using that theme throughout the movie. And coming to terms with him losing his mom. And, and finally dealing with her loss. And it through the love of his dad, that is a great story, and I can see why they wanted to 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 um, expand on that notion. By the way, if you're writing a movie that takes place in between or before a popular movie, don't try to fake us out with a death, because both Ariel's beginning and Bambi two. Tried to pull the, oh my god, did this main character die in the movie that takes place before or during the other movie that you already know that they lived through? Oh no, like, no, come on. Unless you, unless they don't, like, when somebody, when a character, like, Mace Windu in the Star Wars prequels, we know he doesn't show up in the original trilogy, so there's 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 a chance that he may have survived, but there's no guarantee that he survives. So his death makes more sense because number one, it's it's it was it was Anakin's you know kind of di- final descent into the dark side before you know and before he turns into you know before he turns into Darth Vader, and it was and it was and it was ending this character we knew wasn't going to make it to the original trilogy because he's never mentioned again, but. When ba- but we know Baby becomes an adult because we, we see it in the other movie. So you can't trick us into thinking he's going to die when we know he makes it. It's like, I mean, if they tried to kill the dad, too. And unfortunately, all it is is call... They only do it so they can call back 
to that original movie. There's a lot of unnecessary callbacks to the original movie in Bambi 2. It's really bad about that. That's the worst part about it. It's like, hey, remember this part from the other movie that you probably should be watching instead? If it focused more on telling that unique story about Bambi coming to terms with the loss of his mom and his dad coming to, you know, becoming, stepping into his role of becoming a father, it would have been probably the best Disney sequel. As it stands, it's middling because whatever good they tried to bring up with it is lost in, hey, remember this part? Anyway, um, so yeah, the Disney model, which led into the Don Bluth model, the early Don Bluth model, before Don Bluth began, you know, caving into popularity and and wanting to continue his studio, making money for his studio, so he rode the trend of the Disney renaissance. His his model was no longer working, so he needed to follow what was making money, which was things like Rockadoodle and Thumbelina and the Troll in Central Park, which are lower-tier Don Bluth, but not, for the most part, not terrible movies. A Troll in Central Park does fall into the more, hey, mindless kids entertainment, yeah, it, it, a Troll in Central Park is the closest to um, the Happy Little Elves from The Simpsons of Don Bluth's movies. But, you know, he followed it up with Anastasia and Titan A.E., which are decent movies for the most part. They just, you know, led to financial... They One was financially successful and the other led to the closure of Fox, Fox Studios Animation. Fox Animation Studios. <laughs> Whoops. But, uh, you know, I, I, I still think the, the, uh, the original Bluth model but between Secret of Nim, um, An American Tale, Land Before Time, and All Dogs Go to Heaven is, is still could be utilized. I mean, I think the time has passed. We've reached – I don't know how well it would play. You'd need somebody to test the waters with it. You'd need somebody willing to make a darker kids movie to see if people would buy into it. Paranorman wasn't all that successful, so maybe it's not – I know Leica definitely is following that Don Bluth model a little bit. So hopefully other studios may try their hand in it. If Sony or Warner Brothers or Pixar tries to do something along the lines of a Don Bluth movie, maybe we can see a resurgence in that. But a lot of studios will follow trends because that will make them the most money. And unfortunately, the trendsetters for right now are like DreamWorks and Disney. Speaking of DreamWorks, the DreamWorks model is... Problematic. It, sometimes it can work, like with Kung Fu Panda and How to Train Your Dragon. You know, good storytelling rivaling that of Disney and any of the other animated studios. But a lot of times, pop culture references, stunt casting with popular actors, not very good. You know, rel- reliance on slapstick, con- slapstick and high octane manic energy for to distract the kids. From anything really going on. You know, slapstick and slew of storytelling. And DreamWorks at its worst. That's DreamWorks at its worst. Where it's just not really, not even trying that much. And basically being, uh, Lindsay Ellis uh, brought this up in an old, old video of hers. About the eyebrow and how they were the they were the successor to the old Warner Brothers model of like the Looney Tunes. They were like the eyebrow razor like, eh? Yeah, I, I'm the wacky guy. I'm the I'm I'm the edgier version of this. Disney's like the family entertainment. I'm we're that with like an edge to it, and unfortunately, they kind of they kind of sucked. They kind of ultimately led to sucking 
because they weren't really all that trying all that hard. And Disney started picking up on what DreamWorks was doing and ultimately did it be- did it better. <laughs> like Tangled started taking that same mentality in its advertising and its marketing and be- be- being more more subversive with its with with its storytelling. And, you know, instead of repeating the same old formulas, playing around with their old formulas. You see that also in Frozen and in Moana. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, DreamWorks started out as like an FU to Disney. And ultimately Disney adapted and became better at storytelling and realized, you know, and kind of lampshading their own formulas. And DreamWorks basically realized, well, we don't really have an identity besides FU Disney. So what do we do now? I think Saberspark brought that up in his uh, movie about uh, his his video about what's ruining DreamWorks animation. I will say DreamWorks TV for Netflix is doing some stellar stuff between Voltron and um, the How to Train a Dragon series. I hear is good. I loved the um, Captain Underpants series, the Spirit series. That that feels really weird and forced, but I I can't speak to it unless I watch it and. I don't know. Maybe I'll do like a thing on Patreon where it's like, hey, dare me to watch this thing. <laughs> Maybe I'll make that a, an impetus for Patreon. For Patreon. Um, to follow in the Disney model, though, the Ghibli model, which is similar to the old Disney model. Because, well, I guess I should also comment that the Disney model has changed, which started with being for the whole family, but also being allowing itself to be darker, eventually turned into a cookie cutter formula that was set by um, uh, the last little the last the Little Mermaid, and eventually peaked with the Lion King. But at the same time, it still allowed for darker elements and harsher truths. So it still it ultimately never really backed away from those things, but it definitely focused a lot more on the whimsy and the wholesomeness. And that's how that's kind of how Disney. And, you know, Walt Disney planned that all along. He planned for the whole thing to be childlike in its wonderment. And so that's why Disney was sort of faltering after he died, because they didn't have somebody who had that vision of childlike wonderment. And so you had things like the Black Cauldron. And while there were some good stuff in that Dark Ages of of Disney, like Robin Hood, which is Disney's Robin Hood, the creator of the furries, which... I did talk about this on an up. We're gonna, you're going to hear us talk about this in an upcoming episode of um, Living in the Stacks. But the ancient Greeks created furries. You know, context is for that episode. Stay tuned. We're going to cover the last unicorn. <laughs> when the last unicorn, I'll point out when the last unicorn episode comes out because that's when we talk about how the great ancient Greeks created furries. <laughs> um. Suffice to say that, yeah, the, the Disney model has kind of changed and altered as the... Because, I mean, Disney is nearing 100 years old. It's, it's a couple of decades away from being officially 100 years old as a studio. So it's changed and adapted. And so I think the dark ages of the, set late, of the late 60s to, to 1989 before the Renaissance, um, I guess they kind of define it as the Xerox era, the dark ages. But I guess... You could kind of combine the two. The Xerox Age was very was really pretty bad. It was when they were cop- photocopying the cells from the previous movies in order to save money because they were just hemorrhaging money at the time, and it didn't really fix things until um, Eisner came in in the in the in the eighties and started started reshuffling things around and eventually what led to the Disney Renaissance. Um, 
And then after the Disney Renaissance, the siege, the early days of the CG era, the mid two thousands after the Renaissance was pretty bad. That was the second Dark Age, I think. That was the that was the time that brought us one of Disney's worst movies, Chicken Little, and one of their their weakest movies that I still kind of like for what it is, Dinosaur. But yeah, it's not a good movie. <laughs> um, yeah, but then that finally led into this, uh, the current modern day of Disney and their their second Renaissance with. Oh, what would be the? I think Tangled would be the official start of that Renaissance. That led into Frozen, Wreck It Ralph, uh, you know, and now Zootopia, Moana, and most of the other Disney movies they did. I know they're doing um, Wreck It Ralph two uh, pretty soon, but yeah, uh, and to coincide with the Disney model, the Pixar model followed that old Disney model, and that's why it was so well-regarded for that entire decade, up until they started cranking out sequels. And thankfully, Coco, was not, Coco and Inside Out were nice, were called, nice returns to form, but they definitely need to stick to that old model, what they were working with, where they weren't afraid to tackle mature themes, and they were, but they were still providing storytelling that worked for both kids and adults, that both of them could understand. And then... The only thing I would other, the only other thing I would add is there is a certain mentality of like faith based faith based uh, ideas of of wholesomeness and family entertainment. You see this a lot with uh, like pure flicks movies. When I see them in theaters, will also advertise kids move you know major motion pictures for kids, animated movies, Disney live action movies, things of that nature, things geared towards kids because their idea is that. Kids are brought. Kids and families come to these faith-based movies, and you know it deals with the wholesomeness aspect of it. it's not. But it's, it's that kind of wholesomeness once again that cushions real discussion of things, and it cushions them in that idea of like God solves all your problems. And I kind of once again, I I I, I still think about that guy on Stardust who um who who who. Got into it with me about why don't you just shut up about the th- this thing I like, but there are good faith ba- and there are good movies about faith and spirituality that exist. They do not come from Pure Flix Entertainment because all that does it's preach to its cro- to its choir. It's preaching to the converted, not to the unconverted. A good faith based movie should be able to speak to both audiences or have themes that that faith you know believing audiences can identify with while also presenting things that non-believers can identify with and understand as well so i think that's the that's the whole point is that evangelical media doesn't care about preaching you know about presenting its message to a wider audience they only care about making stuff for their crowd and that's you know and hey you know they make money so who cares when the ultimate goal is to make money, what what else matters? Uh, so yeah, I think my best what I, things that I would show my kid: Paranorman for Halloween, Bambi once they reach a certain age, I think six or seven maybe. Uh, old enough, once we've talked about how death, you know, once we once the once the kid ex- has experienced death in it in their life. Then I can show them Bambi and the Lion King and things that do deal with death. Because even if they do feel have those emo- emotional feelings of sadness, at least at least I know that I'm not breaking that to them. You know, 
Um, Cause I think, yeah, by the time I saw Bambi, I think one of my grandparents had already died. So I'm not, that wasn't like my initial reaction. Although it may have been. I think I watched that, I watched that movie so long and repeat, I don't remember when I first watched it. Um, yeah, uh, the Don Bluth movies, I would show them. Uh, I would show them How to Train Your Dragon and Kung Fu Panda from DreamWorks. Not so much the Shrek movies, not so much the other DreamWorks. Captain Underpants, I would show them if they were into, for a more comedic sort of thing. I would show them the Ghibli movies for the most part. Yeah, uh, Nine Neighbor Totoro for sure. Uh, Spirited Away, maybe when they're a little older. And especially, um, I definitely want to show, I would want to show them uh, Princess, uh, well, maybe Princess Kaguya. Uh, but um, no, Princess Mononoke. <laughs> Princess Kaguya, I don't know where Kaguya came from. I think it's from Inuyasha. Um, or it's own, maybe, I think, is that one of the later Ghibli movies? Uh, the, the one that's done like a watercolor? I think that's what it is. Um, one of the last of the movies by Isao Takahata. Love that guy so much. Um, Pixar movies, all the Pixar movies, most of the Pixar movies, not all, not cars. I would not show my kid cars if he, unless they really demanded it because I don't want to sit through cars, man. I got better stuff to do than sit through cars. Um, yeah, the older Disney stuff, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, Steven Universe, most of the stuff from the 90s shows, I think they would get for the comedy. Um, Rocco's Modern Life, Rugrats. Because uh, that's the thing. Rugrats was a really progressive show when you think about it and you break it down. And I would not... You know, a lot of those 90s Nicktoons were definitely... you know, I mean, they played for stuff that went over kids' heads, but it was still funny enough to... I really want to do a Rocco's Modern Life podcast once I revisit, now that I've revisited it through Verve. And yeah, I have to find people to talk about it with. But yeah, it's... I think it's still, a lot of it still holds up for the most part because it's still a lot of the stuff that was brought up in the '90s still carries over for the most part in some form or another. And still interested to see when, when that uh, TV movie special comes out, if how how it turns out, and hopefully maybe it'll lead to a revitalized series. Maybe a couple seasons. I wouldn't mind that. Um, so yeah, the the kids that are ultimately the kids entertainment shouldn't be talking down to them. It shouldn't be condescending, and it doesn't need to be cynical. Wholesomeness isn't necessarily a bad thing unless it's done in the, as a way to cushion them from reality. Wholesomeness as a means of, like, enjoying something whimsical is fine. Wholesomeness as a way of presenting a, a, a you know, as gearing towards their sense of wonder, that's not a problem. Wholesomeness that hides away from heart from the harshness of you know harshness of reality and and doesn't mention it at all. It's sort of like na na na, pay attention to that whimsy, whimsy, whimsy. Yeah, that's not going to help them in the long run. You shouldn't be hiding your kids from these things. Having them understand it isn't a, it should should be your thing. They should be you should be facing it head on with them and just be there for their emotional support as they begin to as they begin to. Coming to their own emotions. But once again, I'm speaking from the point of view of somebody who, who, know, who has seen children's entertainment and has not raised a child. So, what do, for, for parents listening, what do you show your kids? What do your kids enjoy? Is there a thing your kids enjoy that you hate? And is there something that you would much rather they enjoy? So let me know. Send that. Send all of that. I love to hear. I still want to hear from the audience. If you're listening, send out. Send those messages to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com 
and let me know in the and let me know in the in the in the message that you want you would re, you would want read out in the next show because I would love some audience feedback when it comes to these topics. So, yeah, I think ultimately the 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 notion that oh it's for children it's for families as an excuse from criticism is is a, is is a trash argument. So just because it's made for families doesn't mean it has to be bad. It doesn't mean it's above criticism. We should definitely always question what are what we are showing to our kids and whether or not we whether or not it's something good or something that we find something that they we think they should be enjoying. And we should all and just because we don't think they should enjoy it doesn't mean we should shield them from it either. We should always provide them a context for where there is none. So yeah. I think that about does it. So, uh, no Patreon corner. We're going to hold off. But as I suggested, may, if you want to be a, once you start donating to the Patreon as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash popcorn junkie, I would, I would love to start a, um, Patreon segment where it's like, dare, dare me to watch this. So you, once you, you know, once a month, you can suggest a media, thing for me to sit through and t- and and comment on the, the, and endure as like a you know hey watch spirit watch the spirit television netflix series or watch season 2 of 13 reasons why you know something that i would never something i would never want to watch something you think is just horrendous and have a have and have it be along the same lines as like um, Luke's uh, rock reviews, um, uh, regretting the past sort of thing. It's sort of like a hate watching sort of uh, review. So once again, all you have to do is donate as little as a dollar a month, and you get all of the rewards. Uh, you have ten episodes each of Munch Along and po- and Make a Better Movie. Uh, you can suggest episodes. I think I'm going to have all future episodes of those of those series be Patreon suggestions. So. Once you start donating, you can suggest a munch along, a make a better movie, and something for me to review. Uh, whether it's something you enjoy or something you want me to endure is up to your discretion. But have your own Patreon request. Have your you can have your own uh, munch along request and your own make a better movie request. And I will. Gl- I think I want to make that the model from now on for Patreon content. So once again, that's Patreon.com/popcornjunkie. And I would, I would love for your support to the podcast to, to start generating new content. But all, you know, all, it t- all it takes is as little as a dollar a month and I'll do it. So that's once again, patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. Little as a dollar a month. And I'll start taking your requests only one out at a time. So once you, I've done yours, the next, per, next patron in line will, be, have, the decision, will have the suggestion. But, what, but you have to wait your turn. So... Uh, that about does it for that for the discussion portion. So let's get into the box office report. And now the popcorn junkie checks in with this week's box office report. I was already kind of aware of who was going to top the list for this week. I, I saw I was already kind of bank being bank you know being the number one at the box office. But we'll get into that. Uh, dropouts from this past week. Uh, Last week's numbers seven, six, four, and four have dropped out of the top seven. Peppermint, White Boy Rick, and The Predator have all dropped out. Uh, meanwhile, 
our number seven. Also, the only other premiere that I didn't get to see was the Pure Flix distributed Little Women adaptation. Uh, Old Man and the Gun also premiered, but it's a limited release. How many? Five theaters. It's only in five theaters so far. So hopefully it has a a wider distribution. I would love to take my dad to see that. But um, yeah, Little Women, the closest it's playing is like on the other side of Cleveland. So I'm not driving all the way to see that. I'll wait till it comes somewhere closer. Unless there's literally nothing else to see. And unfortunately, we've only got two new releases coming up next week. Oof. Anyway, um, yeah, this week's number seven is last week's number five, which is Crazy Rich Asians, which brought in $4.1 million, bringing its domestic total up to $165.6 million, and bringing its global gross up to $218.8 million. Crazy Rich Asians, you're doing good. You know, you've dominated America. So you're further proof that, you know, we can start showing regular movies with minority casts and people will see it. Because, hey, as long as the movie is good, people will see it. Or as long as it's something that they enjoy. It doesn't have to be good, per se. Because I've heard, def- I've definitely heard people criticize this movie for just being another generic rom-com. But it just hasn't made all Asian cast. And I kind of see where they're coming from. But at the same time, like, you haven't seen anything quite like it either. So that's, that's, what it, that's where it works. Um, number six is a brand new release. Hellfest premiered at number six with $5 million. Bring, and that's all it has is domestic gross. But it only cost $5 million to make. $5.5 million. So it basically made back its budget opening weekend. And everything after here... Um, is is making back its marketing budget, and then if it can reach if it can reach over ten million, it's all profit from there. So we'll see if people if this movie has any legs as we head into the Halloween season. Uh, it, 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 it just might, or it may have come in too early. It may have, it may have been better off waiting a week. We'll see. Uh, number five this week is last week's number three, The Nun, which brought in five point four million dollars, bringing its domestic gross up to one hundred and nine. And it's global gross up to $330 million. Yep, foreign markets love this movie. In fact, the highest grossing from the foreign market seems to be $20 million from Mexico. So Mexico loves this movie. And then you've got $15 million from Brazil. I think I see the connection. There's a lot... Brazil, Brazil and Mexico definitely have a lot of... Maybe not specifically Catholic, but there's a heavy Christian element in there. Maybe seeing that, you know, a movie about the Catholic uh, Catholic themed horror is right up their alley. Because those are, I mean, although all of all the countries, those are the highest grossing. Um, you also got 10 million from Indonesia, which is predominantly Muslim, actually. So, it, it, it and then of course the UK, but the UK is always kind of like second after America, besides China, depending on the movie. In fact, this isn't even released in China, probably because of the religious elements. But hey, you know, good for good for this movie. Yep, for sure. Number four this week is last week's number two, A Simple Favor, which brought in $6.6 million, bringing its domestic total up to $43 million, and its worldwide total up to $62 million. I believe that means it's already making a profit, and... I'm not going to look go back and try to look up its budget its budget from Wikipedia again. 
suffice to say, I think it's doing well, and people are really taking a liking to this movie. And I'm sure it'll probably gross $100 million by the end of its run, uh, at least globally. So good for Paul Feig. Good for expanding your horizons. Good stuff. Speaking of expanding your horizons, last week's number one is number three, with, a, with the house on the clock in its walls, bringing in $12.5 million, bringing its domestic gross up to $44 million, and a couple extra duck, ducats from the foreign markets, bringing its worldwide gross up to $53 million, which means it's made back its budget, but it's not being profitable. So I don't see a sequel movie coming up anytime soon unless they... Unless, um, who is this? Lionsgate, Summit Entertainment. Who's making? Who's releasing this movie? Who's the Who's the studio behind it? Let me see uh, the numbers. Ah, shoot, it's already gone from the from the schedule. Um, let me check the numbers box office. Here we go. Uh, Universal. Yeah, I don't, unless Universal wants to do a directed video or a, a belated sequel, maybe after home video, I don't see it coming back anytime. I don't see it. I don't see any more stories in this universe anytime soon. Uh, next up uh, is the first of uh, first of our you know uh, the second of our wide releases to grace the top ten. Number two is Smallfoot, which premiered at twenty three million dollars, and uh, combined with the foreign markets. Is there a foreign market? Hold on, let me. And combined with the foreign markets, premiered at a $38.6 million. And I did see it on the Wikipedia page when I was there. It cost $80 million to make. That's not a good opening, but hopefully it might have some legs. Especially if, especially until Goosebumps comes out, because that'll be the next family kids movie that, that'll come out. And that'll gear into the Halloween season. But yeah, maybe this will have, once again, I may, this may have a home video run, but yeah, it didn't do all that well, especially compared to uh, number one this weekend, which brought in $28 million. And that is, if you might, uh, yeah, you, you guessed it, Kevin Hart's Night School. And on America alone, it pretty much made back its budget. And then combined with a little extra from the foreign markets, it made $33.5 million. So it's just got to make back um, double that and it will start making a profit. Uh, how does it compare to his... Uh, I think his highest grossing is still um, uh, Jumanji. But that was more of a franchise movie. I don't know what his highest grossing... Uh, here you go. No, that's theaters. Let's do, uh, li- let's do lifetime gross. Uh, yeah, his highest grossings are Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, and The Secret Life of Pets. But those, are, those aren't the ones he starred in. Uh, right along, Central Intelligence has made over a hundred million dollars. Uh, right along two was under a hundred million. Um, but if we look at the opening box office for the movies that he led, uh, right along premiered the highest at 41 million. Uh, Central Intelligence premiered at 35, right along two at 35, Get Hard at 33. The Think Like a Man movies were all around 30 million dollars. So this is... This is right along where he's usually at. So I think his lowest performings are the, 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 his lowest performing opening box office are his stand up specials. And then the wedding ringer is his lowest performing uh, uh, movie uh, that he led grudge match superhero movie. I think that's just stuff he was in soul plane, but that was before he was the Kevin Hart. 
So yeah, uh, his his uh, his his franchise stuff is what makes him the most money. But you know, people still support him in the in his in his solo stuff and his produced stuff. So he's got his audience, even if the movies I don't particularly like. But you know, it doesn't matter whether I like it or not. Once again, all that matters is if it made money and people are gravitating towards it. Don't think it'll have legs, though. I precipit. I, I mean, the house where the clock and its walls had a fifty percent drop. Um, what else premiered last week? Uh, yeah, Fahrenheit eleven nine dropped from eight to eleven with sixty percent. Yeah, stuff is stuff drops pr- way more as as more theaters drop your stuff for, in favor of the new releases, and as fewer people start to see it a second time. So. Yeah, I I don't see that. I don't see people going back and watching Night School. I think this was its best bet, but we'll see. And that was the box office report. So uh, with with the past over, we take a look towards our future in trailer talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. Like I mentioned, we've only got two new releases this weekend. And the first... And there are a couple of doozies. And one is a remake of a of a, of a of a movie 30 years after the last one, but has been remade three times. And I'm going to talk about every single one of them. And the other... Is Sony mucking up its Marvel properties because screw you, that's why. So first up, the big release. Let's talk about Venom. The turd in the wind that is Venom. I'm Eddie Brock. I think that's the worst part of it. Is that Tom Hardy is a perfect casting for Eddie Brock. Unfortunately, the whole point of the Eddie Brock turning into Venom story is integral to a Spider-Man story. So you've basically taken this iconic spider Taken. It's trying to be, it's like some sort of horror movie, which is what you want to go for, but... the world, what do you see? A planet on the brink of collapse. Oh, hey, Risa Meds. Are disposable, but man and symbiote combined. This is a new race, new species, a higher life form. What do you want? Uh oh, he's stuttering. You'll find out. That's the other part is that the dead, the venom symbiote was also attached to Deadpool. So that part is gone from this, too. We cannot just hurt. Ooh. Ooh, this is this is worse than the abyss. These, I don't know if this is the final effects, but this is worse than the abyss, and that's like thirty years ago. I mean, the Venom voice isn't bad. I don't know who that is. This October, that power—it's not completely awful. You have no idea how much you're scaring me right now. Cooperate. And you just might survive. 
guys, you do not want to do this. Trust apparently, me. apparently, this bit with the, with the SWAT team is really bad in the in the promotional uh, clip they've been showing. Superheroes, there's enough superheroes. We'll always come at a cost. That just looks like a lot of jizz, that Riz Ahmed, Tom Hardy fight between Venom and Ra- Ravage, I think it was. Oh, here we go. your arms, and then both of your legs, and then we will eat your face right up your head. You will be this armless, legless, faceless thing, won't you? Rolling down the street. Wave it? Like a bird in the wind. He said it! He said the line! Also, I don't... I'm not into the veiny look of Venom. I like when it was more like the Spider-Man costume. Oh, I have a parasite. Yeah. Name is Chen. Uh, that's what kills me, is that Tom Hardy is perfect casting for Eddie Brock. For those who don't know, Eddie Brock in the comics is a big, burly, muscly guy, but he's a reporter. He was a, he was a, he, you know, he was a, he was a beat reporter. And there was a whole bit, I mean, it's a bit over the top how he became Venom in the comics. But the whole idea was that he followed these stories and one of them he got wrong and it ultimately led to him being fired. And then, you know, it was like full on Peter Parker levels of like, can this day get any worse? Wife left him. Dad disowned him. He developed cancer. And then he became Venom. I feel like, you know, I feel like the whole just, like, him losing his reputation is enough. He didn't need to be diagnosed with freaking cancer. But, you know, comic books. But, yeah, Tom Hardy is perfect casting for Eddie Brock. Way more than freaking Topher Grace was. And yet the movie, it looks like utter trash. It, it complete... It, Venom without Spider-Man is like, Bat, is like Joker without Batman. I know they're going to try and do that, but you don't make a Lex Luthor or a Brainiac movie without Superman. Why are you trying to make villain movies without their heroes? That was my whole issue with Gotham is that all of these cool supervillains are there, but they're not fighting Batman. So who cares? Why should I care about this supervillain when you... I mean, the Suicide Squad tried it, but the Suicide Squad had a history already in the comics. Suicide Squad would have made more sense if we had already seen Deadshot face Batman, Captain Boomerang face The Flash, you know, Harley Quinn, you know, all these villains face off with the hero, and then while they're in prison, that's when the Suicide Squad... But, you know, this is just the nerd in me, you know, calling out Hollywood and it's it's quick it's 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 impatience with trying to make something and so now they're trying to tie in Morbius the vampire villain for Spider-Man and make him a Venom antagonist come on like Venom became an anti-hero long after the fact the same reason same way that Punisher did but at least the Punisher was introduced as a villain first Venom, meanwhile, is introduced as our hero for the most part. Because I highly doubt they're going to make him full-on villain in his first appearance. God, the stupid. Oh, well. At least there's going to be a good movie next week. And that is the aforementioned remake of the classic A Star is Born. This time brought to us by Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga.
interesting pairing. I mean, it makes about as much sense as, uh, what was it, Chris Christopherson and uh, Barbara Streisand. So here's t- let's take a look at the trailer for Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born. Gotta say, going for like the country folk route, is, is, it, it works. Also, Bradley Cooper is really good. He's a really good singer for all things. Yo. Way better than I imagined he would be. Yeah, I can't tell if he's full-on country or if he's, like, folk. From director Bradley Cooper. This is his debut, I can't re- I don't know. Weird seeing Chappelle in an, an acting role. But this is also as, like, I think Andrew Dice Clay as well. Can I ask you a personal question? Okay. Tell you what, though, the marketing has been has done some good stuff showcasing. Like, there's like that scene where Lady Gaga and uh, Bradley Cooper. This scene in particular, but it but it plays out while there's a montage and of all the rest of the movie going on. Sounded, but that they didn't like the way I look. I think you're beautiful. It's October. Hey. What? I just want to take another look at you. Man, it feels so weird to have Bradley Cooper at a deep bass voice. Here's what we're gonna do. Come sing that song. What I love. No, I can't do that. Here, come on, here we go. Look at me. All you gotta do is trust me. That's all you gotta do. Yeah, apparently, I've been talk, I've, as I've talked about this, fans have kind of broken down the production of this movie for me. And apparently, Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper have co-written a lot of the songs here. Interesting. Interesting shots here. The star is born. Nice touch there, editor. Nice. I am intrigued. Once again, it's a remake from an MGM movie. MGM is still doing its whole remake, th- remake everything in its library to make back some of its money. But I think it helps that it takes a couple of decades. Like the first movie was in 1937. Then it was in the 40s with Judy Garland, I believe. Wait a second. Hold on. I want to get this right. Let me take a look at the years. Star is born. First one is 1937. Judy Garland's was in 1954. So, 17 years later. Glock and Change in 17 years. I think it went from vaudeville to, like, what was Judy Garland's? Was it, like, stage? Film star helps a young singer and actress find fame, even as age and alcoholism sent his own career into a downward spiral. Was the, uh, was the other one vaudeville? I want to say it was vaudeville. Stars born Janet Gaynor and Frederick, Frederick Marsh. Um... Young woman comes to Hollywood with dreams of stardom. So it was also uh, Hollywood acting film. So the Garland version was um, a, basically a remake of the same thing. And it wasn't until um, the 70s version, uh, Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand nailed it. 
that was um, that switched it from being about Hollywood to being about rock. And so has been Rockstar falls in love with a young up and coming songstress. And it'll be interesting to see the differences between each version as we go from Hollywood to um, music. You know, we go from film to music and we go from Hollywood to like uh, probably like Nashville or something like that. Um, Yeah, Chris Christopherson, Gary Busey, Oliver Clark uh, in that 70s version, 1976. So that would have been 22 years after that. And so 30... 42 after um, the 70s version we now have a new remake with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga so it'll be really interesting to see the evolution of this storyline as we go from 30s Hollywood to 50s Hollywood to 70s rock to did they say what genre the new one is in the a musician helps a young singer and actress find fame, even as age and alcoholism sent his own career to a downward spiral. Uh, so I'm guessing folk, country, something like that. Um, so we go from rock to folk, country. It'll be interesting to see the evolution of this story uh, with each iteration. And I'll definitely come back to say which is my personal favorite uh, next week. But those are the new releases, and that's the end of this episode, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, be sure to favorite our page and whitelist us on your app locker and check out all of our other fine programming. This week, we've got a brand new episode of Living in the Stacks, and we start a whole new cycle with Melody leading the um, discussion as we read... Shoot, I already forgot what we read. Um, uh, The Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. So that'll be coming out tomorrow as of this episode. So stay tuned for that. Also check out all Donna's other fine programming. We're heading into the Halloween season. It's already October. So be sure to check out her her horror series, Beyond the Cabin in the Woods, or her Supernatural and Buffy series, uh, Once More with Feeling, and The Family Business. And we should be... I should be recording with uh, Mike... Uh, and starting Machine again. I am going to um, try and get some of those uh, Treachery Missile episodes uh, edited this week. And once I can get that ball rolling again, uh, I'm hoping to get those uh, released and maybe hopefully starting uh, starting the recordings again. So stay tuned for that announcement. Yeah. Um, if you if you you know thank and if you are a young podcaster and you would like to join our network and help it grow, send all of your inquiries to gumbacatnetworks at gmail and we'll get back to you. And if you want to check us out off our homepage, you can do so uh, through all of your various podcast providers. We're on Apple we're on iTunes, Google Play, uh, Spreaker, Stitcher, um, Spotify. So wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, I think the only places I'm not are SoundCloud and Podbean. But if you're if there's a place that I'm that you can't find our podcast, then be sure to let me know and I'll try to add add the feed there. And you know, as long as you've got see my orange mug chomping on popcorn, staring at the movies, and we're over a hundred episodes, you're listening to the most up to date feed. And congratulations! And be sure to leave a five star rating and review to let people know that you like the show and they should check it out as well. And you can also share 
the podcast on your various social media platforms. The face, the Facebook is the home of Popcorn Junkie on social media. So go to facebook.com slash popcorn junkie. You can like us there and you can find all of our major announcements through that page. Uh, if you want to get some, in touch with me directly uh, and have discussions with me about trailers that I'm seeing or movies that I'm watching, you can do so on Twitter at, in, in, at, at Corn Junkie Pod. I'm thinking of living in the stacks. So cor- at Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter, you can follow me on Instagram where I do a lot, you know, a post about uh, when I'm seeing new releases and when a new episode comes out, and I'm t- including Stardust posts as well as, as long as I remember. But you can follow me on Instagram at Popcorn Junkie Podcast. And then, of course, on Stardust, it, Stardust is basically Vine for film reviews. So if you want to react to a movie, a TV show, a TV episode, a trailer, and you want to see how other people are reacting to a thing, you can join us over on Stardust. I'm at Popcorn Junkie. You can follow the likes of Double Toasted and uh, the Internet's other John Bailey, John, ba- John No H, but with an I, at Epic Voice, at Epic Voice Guy. He is he is the king of Stardust as far as I'm concerned. There isn't a better Stardust reactor out there. The train is back, but I don't care. Um, I'm almost done. So yeah, you can follow me on Stardust at Popcorn Junkie. And if there's anything you want to say to me, feedback, uh, reactions to my own to my you know your responses to my comment, criticisms of what I said, and and corrections, send all of that to popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. If you want, I'll read it out on the episode. Let me know in the in the message that you want me to read it out on the episode, because otherwise I will just get back to you or and reference the message on the and reference that I got a message and not read your name specifically. So um, that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and we're already getting ready for the spoopy season. Ah, oh, crap! That means I gotta watch horrors and get the spooktacular ready. And I've got to binge all the stars born movies. Oh boy. This is getting a this this October can be a lot more work. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by the M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up Nafio.deviantarts.com for more of his artwork. That's how you combat depression is reminding people that they are loved. That Oh my god! Listen to that horn! Uh, I don't know if it's... That's a great way to interrupt that discussion point. <laughs> well, this might take a while. So, uh... Yes? Yes, Mr. Train. Yes, I hear you, Mr. Train. So, we're going to be. So, yeah, we'll get back to it. I'm going to cut here.